0: Well, why don't we start with the serenity prayer? God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the and, things, and the wisdom to know the difference. To know the difference. I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. I'm In great need of Al-Anon. Um, um, the last while, we've talked about uh, steps and traditions. Not exhaustively, but we've talked about steps and traditions. Um, I think at the end of, of a conference like this, if you're interested in learning more about any of them, it's successful. <laughs> if you say, I never want to hear about them again, it's not that successful. <laughs> um, I know when I was in school, uh, leaving classes, even on you know, very heavy subjects, if you're willing to learn more, it's a good sign. If you say, I never want to touch the subject again, it's a bad sign. Um, So we're going to, a little, uh, steps may come in a little bit this morning and, and some more on traditions and concepts. And the concepts have developed over time. You know, it's kind of a bigger idea of what we're doing, a bigger idea of how we live in the world, a bigger idea of how we're organized. Um, I like the literature. I like, I like the literature of the programs. And new pamphlets come out and, and new things are written. Uh, last night I think we were talking about group conscience and, and issues that come up for group conscience. Um, one of those that has been coming and going for 10 or 20 years is, up, is changing the language of the big book to more contemporary language. Now, it comes up again and again, and it's voted on and talked about, and it's up again. And, and there's conversation about having a fifth edition of the book coming out. And so a lot of people discuss this, and one of the good things, it's also infuriating, is the ongoing discussions and exchange of views and points of view and... And they'll say, in in the text, as we're looking at traditions and concepts, we don't want our fellowships to be run by the tyranny of the majority, which happens politically. You know, like you have 51% and the other side has 49%. So you do everything you can to destroy them with your 51%. Not that that happens. But but we don't want that. So there's majority and there's minority. And, and we want to respect minority points of view. And sometimes minority points of view have it right. Uh, so so there's, there's many things to be concerned with here. And we discuss stuff. And, and they'll ask in group level, uh, the, the local level, and then it goes up to another discussion. And, and, and things take time. In Al-Anon... Um, for a period of years, uh, they discussed whether there should be a pamphlet for men. Al-Anon is for men. And I think it was 10 years of discussion, because they won everybody until they finally said, yeah. Then they said, should we have a um, uh, a, pa- a pamphlet for lesbian, gay numbers, 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 should... Oh, well, that was much more intensely fought for a hundred reasons. And, and I think there is one. So um, a pamphlet for parents and grandparents. So things aren't done quickly when you're dealing with the common welfare and when you're dealing with the democratic spirit. And I think fundamentally and temperamentally and ideologically, I'm democratic. I, I, I like the process, even though it's an inconvenient process. Uh, and the literature, uh, so, so literature comes out, it's okay to have your favorite literature and it's okay to not like something. Uh, I find some literature very boring uh, the committee worked on it a little too long, if you know what I mean. And it's now just bland. It's just bland. Any bit of excitement or interest was sucked out so they could have this generic cottage cheese presented to the group. Um, this I found riveting in, in, uh, as it describes some of us, and you know who you are. This is from the textbook, How Al-Anon Works, which is my favorite piece of Al-Anon literature. And um, uh, this is on page seven. Describing our behavior. Most of us have argued, pleaded, bargained, threatened, walked out, come back, given ultimatums, failed to carry them out, or carried them out and felt guilty. We've tried to reason with the drinkers. We've scheduled their free time. We've monitored their their behavior. We've complained, we've prayed. We've tried to avoid doing anything that might cause the alcoholic to drink. We've searched for opportunities to make the drinker see how destructive their drinking can be. Mostly, We've hurt and we've worried. Now, I think that's almost poetry. Mm. And I think we could get that calligraphied and hand it out to newcomers. Welcome, we're so glad you're here. Um, We know this behavior, we know this crazy. This is why so many of us coming in um, are so exhausted. Next paragraph. We don't have the option of trying to change the alcoholic, so we've changed our circumstances, our jobs, our clothes, our friendships, our locations, our religions, practically everything about ourselves, but nothing seems to have a lasting impact on our suffering. We, too, turn to Al-Anon in hope of finding some kind of relief. And it's not always fast relief. Uh, William James, in his varieties of religious experience, will talk about spiritual experience. I think we could say spiritual or religious um, uh, awakening. Um, and, and sometimes it's really quick and sudden, and sometimes it's really slow, There's a 20th century Jesuit scientist, priest, thinker, got into trouble with the Vatican, so you know he's worth reading. Um, he, uh, he, talked, he, he was talking to a younger person who was, I think, trapped in school. You can get trapped in school. Graduate studies, you know, you're in law school, you're in medical school. You just, you, it's... Uh, there's no air, you know, will this ever end? And in a letter to this young person, he said, above all, trust the slow work of God. Mm. Which I frequently chew on and meditate. The slow work, of, think of glaciers, you know? <laughs> um Things take time. Real things take time. And that's true for our recovery. Some things can improve right away. And other things take a long time. The line in the AA book, big book, that is well worth reflecting on is, do not get discouraged. You know, I should be so much better by now. I should be so much better by now, and some of us should be so much better by now. But you know that you can just you can just get so you think you're doing really well, and then you act like a jerk one more time. My sponsor um, and I this is many years ago um, he was speaking at... Knew this, I was his New Year's Eve date. Uh, he was speaking at the uh, Salvation Army uh, in downtown Los Angeles, which, which deals with a lot of Skid Row folks, mostly men, Salvation Army, and they, they preached religion, but they also had AA meetings, and, and anyway, Terry was going to be the New Year's Eve speaker at the Salvation Army, which is hilarious. Because frequently, frequently, sometimes meetings will have fancy New Year's Eve parties and people come all dressed up and there's, you know, food and things and, and elegance and dancing. This was Salvation Army downtown L.A. And I was teaching in Los Angeles at the time. Terry came to my house. We had something to eat. We drove down to Salvation Army on Fifth Street in Skid Row, L.A., and I, as a teacher, I frequently carry a pen with me. I mean, I noticed Tim does too. Lots of people carry pens and paper. Because when you hear something good, you want to write it down. What I've noticed that young people do is they use their phones for this. And I've done that. Um, I've put things down that I've heard at the meeting. Just because something is really good or insightful or clever doesn't mean I'm going to remember it. So I need to write it down precisely. So I'm there and I have some paper and Terry's talking to this room full of men newly in recovery. Some five days, some five weeks. And he talks about how tough it is to be alive. And it is tough to be alive. There are so many struggles. Nothing's easy. Uh, Scott Peck In his book, The Road Less Traveled, uh, his opening line is, life is difficult. And I think there's a a fantasy that if you're a good person with a pure heart, your life should be easy. Mm -hmm. And that's a fantasy. Life's hard. For some people, it's extremely hard. And I I know that. Mine's been pretty simple. Uh, That's not the point. So Terry's talking about life, life and stuff, and as he's talking to this room full of men and some of them are leaning over like this, and some are like this, and some are listening very carefully, he says, "You know, we live in a world that, that operates with five rules. There's five rules of the world, and they're killers. Rule number one: you cannot have anything wrong with you. I mean, you can't, you can't. Be weird or strange or too slow or too... You have to conform, you have to look good, you have to fit in. This is really true with kids. When I was dealing with high school kids, if you stood out, life was more difficult. You wanna be part of a group, you wanna have... You can't have anything wrong with you. Rule two! If you do have something wrong with you, get over it fast. And this is where we think we're so open-minded. You know, you're having a really bad time. Take the afternoon off. Come back tomorrow. Get back to work. Uh, you know, your mom died. Well, that was a month ago. You know, we expect you to be up, up to snuff, which might be a Swedish term. <laughs> um, high, high-grade tobacco. Um, uh, you get, get over it fast, you know. Uh, We like quick diseases, and we have quick relationships, and we prefer quick wars. When things linger, it discourages us. Rule three, if you won't get over it fast, pretend you did, (laughs) which is where some of us become experts. You're just dying inside, but you have to look good. You're thinking of hanging yourself a little later on the evening, but you have the coffee commitment at your local group. So you can't leave early to buy rope. You have to fulfill your commitment and then with the story. It's, it's very, but the, pre, the pretense, I'm just fine. Uh, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect. And whistle a happy tune, so no one will suspect. I'm terrified. (laughs) Pretend. Rule four, if you won't pretend, drop out. Get out of here. We're not going to put up with you. If you're not going to happily live with our hypocrisy, we have no time for you. And rule five, if you won't drop out, at least have the decency to look ashamed when you're around the rest of us. So you'd come to a group like this and say, Hello, my name is Tom, and I'm so ashamed. You know, I'm, so many things are wrong with me. Um, my fifth step wasn't long enough, and I don't pray long enough, and this, I don't go to enough meetings, and my diet is crap. If I just stand in the back and don't make noise, can I stay? And then Terry said, to this group of brand new people in Skid Row, Los Angeles, New Year's Eve, 1979, 1980. He said, if you're going to come into recovery, you have to break those rules. Like the first rule that says you can't have anything wrong with you, Terry said, listen, if you don't have something seriously wrong with you, we're not interested. Go bore someone else with your wholesome little life. But if you're a crazy person, oh, come on in. You know, we're so glad you're here. I just got out of prison. We're looking for a treasurer. You know, we're, we're glad you're here. You don't have, rule two, you don't have to get over it fast. Some of us are malingerers. Like my little issue I mentioned yesterday with authority figures. That is so deep in my bones I, don't, I'm, I'm, I have chronic difficulties with some areas of my life. Rule three, you don't have to pretend. We know you're a little bizarre. We know you're stranger than you'd like others to know. Because <laughs> we are too. We're glad you're here. Rule four, you don't have to drop out. And rule five, you don't have to be ashamed. We're glad you're here. So you start saying things like, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict, I'm a compulsive overreader, I'm a gambler, I'm a sex addict, I'm... all those things that are there. And we, what we say in response to you is, Hi, <laughs> we're glad you're here. My, my sponsor believed that the first experience many of us have of the higher power is the welcome we get at our first meetings. Because we're so glad to see you. No one else is. Come on in. Um, The warmth. The, the, the genuine, we're so glad you're here. And then he went on to say, and this is on years later on reflection, one of the signs that he was starting to wake up spiritually. How do you know you're spiritually healthy or alive? How do you know you're connected with the higher power? How do you know you're doing, doing this right? Which for some of us is very important because there's rules. He said the first, upon reflection years later, the first sign he had that he was getting well, he was at a meeting, and a newcomer talked and said, I have 30 days today. And he, the newcomer was really happy. And Terry felt joy and love for him. When you start feeling joy, With someone else's recovery, it's a real good sign you're getting well. There's a British sister named uh, Sister Wendy. She's done lots of BBC things and she goes into museums and helps people look at paintings. She's a very interesting person. When I'm sick of everything, I can listen to her without yelling at the TV. Um, and she helps people look at Picasso and Matisse and Cezanne. She, 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 she's lovely. Um, and uh, they asked her, Sister Wendy, you've been a sister all these years, how do you know you're growing spiritually? You know, which if you're really self-obsessed, that's all you think about, you know? Am I better than them? Am I better than this? Am I be- And Sister Wendy said, the question is, are you any easier to live with? If you're easier to live with, something's going on that's good. If you're still a pain in the butt, you're not done yet. Work on this. Almost done. Um, There's a Canadian murder mystery writer. I like murder mysteries. I, I even count those for a spiritual reading probably, which is a sign of <laughs> deep perversion, you know. Um, I love um, uh, Vera. If you know Vera BBC, I, I think she's a brilliant detective. I can watch her over and over and over again. She's a woman of a certain age who's a brilliant cop and she dresses just like I do, not very well. Uh, only she wears a funny hat and I'm not doing that right now. And she drinks a little. So I, she's, everything about her is appealing to me. Um, I like Vera. Uh, but this one, her name is Anne Perry. And she's written a whole bunch of books about a little town in, uh, French Canada near the Vermont border. And and you develop things and like Agatha Christie uh, uh, would write about uh, Miss Marple, whom I also like very much. Um, and Miss Marple lived in St Mary Mead. Have you been to St Mary Mead? And um, <laughs> it's the most murderous village in the UK because there's a murder every year. You know some horrifying thing. And and Perry has has these um, uh, aunt, yeah. Aunt. So the, the village. Um, and there's a cop. At, uh, I think Anne Perry is our modern Agatha Christie. It's not important. Her main character is a cop named Armand Gamache. Who's a good cop. Struggles, has difficulties, uh, has trouble with his kids, has trouble, you know, Life. But he has a way of reaching out to young cops who've been damaged. They've gotten beaten up, they've gotten overstretched, they've gotten betrayed, they've got, and they're, they're, they're birds with broken wings and more. And he'll bring the young cop in and mentor, foster, sponsor, and try to get them back on their feet as people. And he says to the young cops, There are four sentences that you can use if you want to grow into wisdom. Uh, Four things you can say. Now, I I read these at an Al Anon meeting and I was yelled at because it wasn't Al Anon literature. And they're right. But it's still worth hearing. Four sentences for wisdom. Number one, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Number two, I don't know. Number three, I need help. Number four, I was wrong. How simple, right? I'm sorry, I don't know, I need help, I was wrong. And those don't come trippingly off the tongue for some of us. Especially if you can't have anything wrong with you. Because that appearance has to be there of I'm in charge, I'm in control, I know exactly what's going on. I'm sorry. I don't know. I need help. I was wrong. Um, we wake up in recovery. We experience being alive. We get out of our isolation And we start getting involved in the give and take of being with other people. For some of us, it starts first with strangers. We meet them at meetings or in treatment. And for some of us, the graduate work of recovery is when we do some of this with family members. It's tough. Uh, My sponsor believed that in Al-Anon, we learn the graduate work of recovery. The communication, the dialogue, and, and sometimes it's quicker and sometimes it's slower. So that those are my opening remarks for a Wednesday in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm.
1: I've never been to St Mary Mead, but I did go to Hogwarts, and, and, and uh, just to save you figuring it out, it was Slytherin. I was in Slytherin. I, there we uh, go. I knew that. Everyone is. Yes, that's not hard to work out. Uh, t- Tim, alcoholic, and, and Alanon. Uh, I'd like to talk about something very advanced, if I may. May I you talk may. about? Something? You may. Oh, thank you. Uh, the very advanced thing that I'd like to talk about is how to wake up in the morning. Um, I've... I have difficulties... With... Waking up in the morning... And getting into the day... Without falling down... A rabbit hole... With no end to it. Um... Sometimes I go to sleep... And I'm absolutely fine. And I wake up in the morning... And I'm absolutely fine. And I'm like snow white coming out of the cave or whatever and all the little woodland creatures come out of the cave is it Snow White, is that the Disney film I've got this image of all the little creatures coming out in, after a storm or something and, and, and sometimes in the morning it's like that, not often <laughs> but sometimes it's like that um, I'm usually okay-ish as long as I do a couple of things when I wake up in the morning um, I know there are people that say the first thing they do is hit their knees, mm. which sounds like a very violent act to yeah. me, <laughs> a very violent act. No one's told them not, that not everyone in the world prays on their knees. They haven't heard that. <laughs> I've heard people say, unless you do your step three on your knees, you haven't taken step three.
0: It's only for Baptists. <laughs> it's, <okay. laughs> it's
1: one of the major
0: world religions, isn't it, ben? Um,
1: <laughs> um, so I've got a no- normal little morning routine which involves listening to a few things and I go to a little morning meditation meeting and I'll say a little prayer and I just get myself ready for the day and have a little chat with my higher power uh, and the truth is I am uh, occasionally I wake up very joyous snow white uh, mostly I wake up absolutely fine the abyss is there, but I just know how not to fall in it, and it's fine. Sometimes I wake up, and I'm not on the same planet that I went to bed on. I'm on another planet. The planet is not even, as they say in Star Trek, an M-class planet capable of sustaining life. And my position on this planet in some unknown galaxies, I'm a small piece of coal which is smouldering and hasn't got long left. That's how I am sometimes in the morning. And I have no idea how to get home or who I really am. I just know I'm smouldering on a planet which cannot sustain life. Um, And (laughs) Now, I don't think this happens to me in order that God teach me a lesson. I don't think God pushes me onto this alien planet in order to humiliate me. But I can learn the lesson from it that my state of my my state of mind and my recovery is contingent upon the maintenance of a daily program it 's not like I did the steps, and then everything stays great forever and My system is in a very careful equilibrium, and if one small thing changes, the whole thing goes out of kilter very easily. For many months, uh, I would get to work at seven in the morning and get to the office at seven in the morning. And on the way, there was a cafe which was open where I had this sort of loyalty thing where you pay a subscription. You can have five beverages a day and and I would go and I would get my beverage on the way to work. And they changed their opening times so that uh, they didn't open until after I had to be at work. And I just wanted to give up. It's like I was only just breaking even with life as it was. This small change, we're now below the line, what's the point? Life is very time-consuming, and life is not good value for money as it is. And this just, how am I supposed to have... And also, it triggered the whole thing of you know, the system is against me and the world is run by these systems that don't care about people and we're all just puppets of the system and there is nothing you can do and it's just faceless bureaucracies everywhere with fake human faces and no one really cares and I just want to go... There was a a British author called... It still is, he's still a called Alan Bennett who 20 years ago said, I think in a New Year's Day article in a newspaper he says when I read the news I just want to go and live in a field and I understand that Um, now I've got a very carefully curated way of living which I've developed over the, the the decades I've been in recovery and one small thing and I'm out of kilter and yesterday so, someone and we won't mention who. Someone I've got a number of topics that I like not to think about because I just can't really deal with them. Uh for a few years, I kid you not, it was um zombies. If anyone mentioned zombies, I was just for six hours I I just couldn't even concentrate. And I <laughs> I'd be walking along the road, because they've scared, they're have they very scary, if you've ever seen one. The slow ones from the 1960s, fine. The fast ones, <laughs> whoa, there's not a lot you can do about those. And I would be walking down the street, I'd see a bus with a huge advert on the side for some zombie film. And i would like, this ruined my whole day. How am I supposed to get on that? Uh, and it's like this portal would open up and I'd just get sucked into it. And um, <laughs> I'd like to say, well, I just took step three again on my knees and I was... Uh, no, 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 no. No. What I did do, I eventually spoke to someone not in the program but a spiritual teacher in uh, Denver, Colorado. I'll give you his email address. Um, we had a chat about this and it became apparent that I wasn't scared of zombies. I was scared of people who are irrational <laughs> and who are driven by forces within them which, and, which are controlling them. And the, As soon as I realised that, that there was a little short circuit there, the ho- that actually went away. But I've got a number of things, a number of topics where if you mention it, I, I just, I, I'm not good at dealing with it. It sends me off on one, and it can take me a while to get back. Um, for a while, it was global warming, and then it was fascism, and then it was Russians, and that, no offence to anyone, but not Russians, the people, Russian, you know, the, the, the country, whatever. Um, and yesterday, someone just casually, in passing, mentioned one of the banned topics. My friends know about my band topics. I'd just like to say, this is after 30 years of work in the programme, okay? (laughs) So, can you imagine what I was like 30 years ago? It it was... Actually, maybe not. Maybe don't imagine it. Um, Just stay in the room. Um, Someone mentioned something to do with the band topic. One of the band... I hadn't told anyone that there was a band topic. Uh... But I didn't have enough downtime before I went to sleep last night. I got back to the hotel. Um, There was some work stuff I needed to answer some emails so that they'd have the emails in the morning. Uh, There were some sponsors I dealt. I just turned some things around very quickly. And I thought, right, I'll have half an hour to wind down. I'll do some prayers and... I got four words into the first prayer and I thought, I can't pray anymore. I'm too tired to pray. And I have to say, if for 50 nights in a row, I think, I'm going to pray for half an hour before I go to sleep. (laughs) On one night out of 50, I succeed. On the other nights, I'm one paragraph in, I'm two words in and I'm gone. So I didn't have any downtime, and then all night, I woke up about eight times, which is two times more than usual, so I knew there was something up. And this single idea was filling this this banned topic about the future. I'm much more ambitious with my fears and resentments than I used to be. Uh, I used to worry about small things like my life. Now I worry about the fate of the human race. Uh, I've had problems with the fact that the sun is going to burn out. And with the, the, the there 's the kid in the Woody Allen film that won 't do his homework because he 's discovering that the universe is expanding and will eventually reach a point near to absolute zero where all the all of the molecules are evenly spaced apart so he 's seven but so what 's the point in doing my homework if this is where the universe is going? What is the point in anything if the sun is going to burn out if it 's going to burn out it might as well burn out today so i I had some some this, this sort of lucid Dreaming, for most of the night, uh, about all of the various ways in which doom was on its way, and it was going to get me, and there was no point in anything. Okay. Um, it's rather like I, there's another Woody Allen short story, where uh, it's about uh, a cupboard, and it's a magic cupboard, and if you if you go into the cupboard with a book, you end up living inside the story that the book is about. So this little old Jewish man in New York goes in every day into the cupboard with a a copy of Flaubert's Madame Bovary, and he starts to interact with all of the characters in Madame Bovary, and all of these literature professors across America start saying... It's so strange. that You can tell Flaubert is such a great writer because you think you know the novel. You think you know Flaubert. But then suddenly, I've never noticed this character, this little old Jewish man from New York in Madame Bovary before, but there he is. Um, uh, and anyway, uh, the building burns down. And someone, uh, to save themselves... They go into the cupboard to save themselves from the fire, hoping the fire brigade will get there in time. The only book in the cupboard is a textbook of remedial Spanish. (laughs) And the place burns down. He gets trapped for eternity in this wasteland, being chased by the irregular verb tener. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt when I woke up this morning okay so what do you do now I know all of you are serene and placid and vegan and everything is fine and you're doing your bit for the planet and you never have a bad day but I know some of you have sponsees who have bad days so maybe this information will be useful to you um so what did I do now if I were if I were a good AA what would I do? I'd do prayer and meditation. I would meditate and commune with God. No. If I'm in that state and I try, or I try, th- think, think, think. Let's try to think rationally about this. No. I cannot think rationally in that situation. First things first. Sometimes there's this pride thing where people say, before I even have my first cup of coffee, I connect with my higher power. Maybe when I'm 40 years sober, I will get to that. I'm only 30. It's early days. No, no. Okay, Tom is shaking his head for that, people on the tape. Um I get my cup of coffee first. So I went down with my special big mug because I need a lot of coffee. coffee the, the, the hotel mugs are too small. So I've learned to take a very big mug with me wherever I go. <laughs> I went and filled it with like eight espressos. I should be better than now, but I'm not. Uh, they were weak, but nonetheless. So I filled it with espressos. I went back to my room. I had some work to do. I, I wanted to just get the work out of the way before I came here today. I did say one small prayer and it wasn't even with words. As soon as I start trying to use words in prayers, I, it's a, I get lost and I get all these and thous about it and, and <laughs> I can say formal set prayer, like I've got lots of prayers memorized and that's really helpful in all sorts of different ways. But if I need like the hotline to God, I use an image and the image was I'm very stupid. I know nothing I've tied myself up in knots. I don't know how I've done it. I can't get out of this. I am hopeless. There is nothing I can do. Over to you. I'm going to get on with some work. And there was some Polish CT scan report that I needed to do something with, so I dealt with that. And it took about an hour. And as I was doing that, little thoughts started coming to me I didn't think it through I pushed the prayer up to the higher power and then got on with something else and the little thought that came to me was look out the window, the sun is shining Uh, the thought came to me how many other times have you thought, Tim that the world is ending and it didn't and then another thought came, something that Tom said yesterday about how many times have civilizations ended and then restarted and some of the people get out and some of the people don't. But it reforms. Something takes its place and maybe one day it won't. But the thing which happened was of value even though it wasn't forever. So I've read a lot of history, I've read a lot of other things, I know a lot about Eastern Europe for lots of different reasons, I know a lot about different cultures that have been in Eastern Europe which are no longer there in Eastern Europe today, or barely there. I'm familiar with the idea of civilizations ending, cultures ending, cultures transplanting and changing. Why should the one I'm in, I would be alright even if everything ends. Now I can't come up with those thoughts logically and rationally I have to let go completely and wait I have to let go completely and wait, I was on the phone to someone on the way here and she was very helpful she, she tried to say some no she, she didn't try, she said some very helpful things about the band topic <coughs> Which were right and true and good and represent a restoration to sanity. But my, when I'm crazy, cr- my craziness and my sanity are not on the same spectrum. I can't combat my irrationality with reason. It's not like acids and bases. Um, where you put the two together and you neutralise and you end up with a pH of 7, they're not in the same place, which is why if one of my sponsees is having a crazy day, the most hopeless thing I can do is say, well, let's learn to look at this rationally because the, the two are not on the same spectrum. They're completely different zones. So reason is not my response to lack of reason. Surrender is my response to lack of reason. So there's a little white flag here, uh, which I'm going to wave. There we go. Um, So what did I do? I got on with something practical and useful. A friend of mine says this is the most, I think, maybe the most useful thing I've ever heard in recovery is you can only choose between the available options. So with the drunk, there are some people in my life, some are drinking, some are sober, some are on a journey. Um, And with the ones who are on a journey with their addictions or whatever. You see, I want one of the options to be for everything to be nice, for them to get well and for us to be well together. But the only two available options are don't have them in my life or have them in my life as they are and love them as they are even though they're going through some stuff which is difficult not just for them but sometimes for the people around. Those are the only two options When I'm grieving the option which is not really an option, what I'm grieving is a fantasy. What I'm letting go of is the thing which is not real, this alternate universe where so-and-so is well and serene and pleasant and well put together and dull. So I can only choose between the available options. And my two available options this morning were to try to fix myself using spiritual means, or to get on with something useful. And I got on with something useful, and I first prayed to God, and by by nine o'clock I was all right, and then I was in a meeting for 20 minutes, and I did a walk, and it's fine now. And the funny thing about the spaces that I end up in, Uh, I used to, I've I've, I've got a very checkered history with uh, professionals. Some people have found lots of outside help, not just beneficial, but vital to even get them through the doors of recovery or to keep them in recovery. Um, I heard someone say to a sponsor, go and have some therapy and everything you learn, you bring it back here and we will work the steps on it. Uh, I thought that was a very good answer, a very good s- uh, way of addressing the situation. Uh, I don't know what it is about me, but I have not responded well to outside forms of help. I would go into... And it's not because there was anything wrong with the nature of the help or the particular practitioners. It's the particular way that I'm broken is not very amenable to any of the outside approaches that I used. Uh, I would go in with one problem like, I'm really anxious today. And I would come out of the session with a very clear understanding of how my anxiety today related to four major events of my childhood and my parents' behaviour and my brother's death and blah, blah, blah. And that now I had to go through the day, not just dragging... Not just dragging a piece of tissue stuck to my shoe, but dragging chains behind me with safes and, and, and huge twisted metal objects like, like Jacob Marley in A Christmas Carol. Just for eternity dragging around these chains which he's built link by link through his life. And I, I couldn't get through the day. I, was, I found it harder to get through the day after a session with an, a very high-quality professional. And then I would go to Maureen and say... So, because people would queue up and tell me what type of external help to get when I was new. And their advice would have been right for someone else, but it wasn't right for me at that time. Uh, I remember someone saying, unless you do transactional analysis, you're not going to get well. Unless you do family of origin work, you're not going to get well. Mm -hmm. And I went to Maureen and I told her this. And she said, block your ears. I'm about to say a bad word. She said, horse shit. (laughs) You can remove the hands from the ears now. Um, She said, do the steps first. Just go to your home group this evening and share. (coughs) And that was possible for me. And I've over-intellectualized the program and overcomplicated it in so many ways. And the short way out of any situation I find myself in, that they talk about the path being narrow, the path getting narrower. And sometimes people argue with that. Well, it doesn't say that in the book. It talks about a broad highway, and you can argue with anything if you try. You can agree with almost anything if you try. But the na- and I understand. I understand the broad highway thing. I understand the narrow pathway. The narrow pathway thing is, I can get away far less with mental aberrations, with wandering in dark mental places. I'm much more allergic to those today than I used to be. I used to be able to indulge. I used to be able to watch a lot of politics and get away with it. I can't do that anymore. Does that mean I'm better? Does that mean I'm worse? I don't know, but it's how things are. It's how things are today. And the quick way back is... To surrender and say to God, I, do, I know nothing, you know everything, show me the next right thing to do. And the funny thing is that the the qualitative difference between how I felt with some of these outside practitioners and how I feel with the program, as I said, this is not advice to anyone. To, not, if you need outside help, get, do whatever helps and whatever you need to do. This is just my Story. I can't help what my story is. I'm so embarrassed that this is the case. But I remember a particular therapy session where the problems seemed more solid and real and tangible and present and physical than they had been at the beginning of the session. And now, how I feel now at whatever it is, 11.25, compared to how I felt At seven in the morning, it's like what was going on in my spirit at seven in the morning was like a tornado. And it's a very interesting image that the book uses the tornado. The tornado is air, but moving very, very quickly but it has no substance. It's very destructive, but it has no substance in itself. And I look back at the state of mind I was in and my fretting about the banned topic at 7am, and it was nothing. At the time, it was very destructive, but it was nothing. There's... There's no reality to it. But you couldn't have told me that. I had to be removed from it. And then looking back, I can see that there was no reality in it. It's like when you're watching a film and you're totally sucked into the drama of the film and you leave the movie theatre and you think it's just a film. And it physically affects you when you're in it. But when you're out, It was just a film. And the real reality is okay. But I can't get myself there. I have to be taken there. There Um, Okay.
0: I really like listening to Tim because we have very many similarities. Uh, Different also, but but the... um, When I wake up crazy, full of fear or anxiety or self-loathing, I get up, I go outside, I do yard work. Uh, I have a garden in the front and the back, I I, I pull things, I water things, I move things around and it gets me out of the worst of my crazy. I'm a great believer in the yard, in the garden. Um, Also, part of uh, having a perfect program (laughs) is admitting when you're wrong promptly. And I want you to know in the last uh, uh, talk, I, I made a huge mistake and I'm so ashamed. Um, the author of, of uh, those, those novels, the Canadian author, is not Anne Perry. She's also an author. And she also writes murder mysteries, but that's a different person. The, Cana- the nice, can- I think Anne Perry's one of you Brits. Um. Uh, um the nice Canadian lady who's the murder mystery writer is Louise Penny, is her name. Louise Penny. So this is promptly getting, getting well. She's also very friendly to recovery. And in one of the novels, of course, in the village there's a body. I mean, that happens regularly. And they find under the body um, a 24-hour chip. And no one knows what that is. They have to go into an AA meeting and track down AA and figure out what's going on. And this is not to discourage you, but the person who was murdered was on the way to making amends. So now that doesn't mean you should not—that <laughs> you should not make amends, okay? But but that. So it, I, I found it to be a delicious story, and, and but it's it's Louise Penny, not Anne Perry. And she's, she's written 10 or 12 novels. She, she's not as prolific as uh, Agatha Christie, but she's prolific. And I find them quite lovely. Let's take a break for about 15 minutes and then come back and do the next thing. Okay?